This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to... We're watching here, we're watching here... This is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me, he is the Andy Samberg to my James Corden, Perry Seibert. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a, that's a push. Uh, that's fine. I, 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 if you switched him, it wouldn't be any better or worse. <laughs> I, I can li- live with that. No, nah, I, I like Andy Samberg, and uh, James Corden to me is, like, it, it, I just have a visceral reaction when he shows up in anything. <laughs> I um I I I I think James Corden can actually act but has been encouraged not to. <laughs> <laughs> it, he just the the carpool karaoke the everything he does late night just is like nails on a chalkboard to me. Um a little better than Fallon but uh but yeah just just <laughs> that's that's an understandably low bar you have described. He yes, he it. is to TV what um oh i'm blanking on the name now the guy from eddie redmayne is to film he is to tv what eddie redmayne is to film for me just i i they show up on screen and i i can't deal with it but the reason i brought them up is obviously they are uh the best actor nominees two of the best actor nominees for golden globe best actor in a motion picture musical or comedy um so, so the Golden Globes were announced recently, and yeah, I, Perry, I, I don't know about you, I have barely followed them. Um, and looking down the list, I, I feel like there's a reason for that. Yeah, the Golden Globes are exist only to be a TV show. Yeah, they are a colossal joke. I mean, they really don't matter at all. Uh, and even the fact that they split it into comedy and drama seems to make that clear to me. Yeah. I mean, that's, to be fair, that's a holdover from, you know, during the, if you if you know the history of the Golden Globes, it was both, it was three categories. It was comedy, drama, and musical for years and years and years. And it wasn't until probably the late 60s or something that they collapsed comedy and musical together just because there weren't enough musicals being made anymore. And so that's, I mean, it's a, it's a you know, it's a, it's a, it's a vestige of, an era that's been dead for decades that we still have this. They should just collapse them together again and just have one category or even more interesting. If you don't want to give up the star power, nominate 10 people and things in each category. (laughs) But then we wouldn't have known that the Martian was a comedy. Exactly. Exactly. It's ridiculous that, or that any television show an hour long is a drama. Yeah. Yeah. It's Um, we are actually not talking about the Golden Globes today. Um, Thank God. We we are going to continue our best of 2020, or our 2020 wrap-up. Uh, these might not be the best of 2020, but end of the year, kind of catching up on things uh, in the new year. And it just so happens that our first episode of February in Black History Month, we're going to look at three films Uh, Three new films from Black Voices. Uh, We're going to be talking about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, One Night in Miami, and Judas and the Black Messiah. I'm really excited to get in this conversation. These are three films I think are going to be really interesting to talk about. But first, Perry, what have you been watching? What have I been watching? Well, I tried to do a deep dive through what was sitting on HBO Max. Okay. Looking deep, like just put it on A through Z and scrolling through and trying to figure out, you know, what can, what what haven't I seen in a while? What did I never get around to? And sure enough, last Saturday night, Chris, I landed on something I hadn't seen in 15 years. Something I'd always meant to get back to. Something that had been traditionally hard to find. Something that at the time seemed remarkably on point and really smart, and 15 years later, it's nearly spooky how prescient it was in so many ways. What is this? This this would be Mike Judge's Idiocracy. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which I only saw 
I never even saw that in the theater. I saw it when it first came out on home video. No one saw that in the theaters. That was no, that was like it got buried. Yeah, that that had no opening weekend whatsoever, except in maybe two theaters in Austin. That was crazy how they buried that. <laughs> and uh, boy, yeah, it's still real, real good. Oh yeah, I hate I hate the term holds up. I don't think that's a thing. I don't. I, I hate that terminology. I hate what it implies. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's still great <laughs> and, and terribly underseen. And I had no idea it was sitting on HBO max. So if you're an HBO max subscriber and you have not seen idiocracy, you have homework. You're welcome. It, it is a joy to sit through that movie. I've seen that one two or three times and it is a pleasure and yeah, it, it gets more, sadly more resonant every year from the first scene on like that very first (laughs) explanation of how it goes into dystopia it's not even satire anymore that's documentary it's interesting that i also saw uh, i rewatched network fairly recently Mm -hmm. uh with with uh with my oldest daughter and i i was i was watching idiocracy i thought oh these were the only two films that got it right Mm -hmm. they 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 saw the dystopian future (laughs) <laughs> and and made them funny <laughs> and on point. Yeah. And very dark. <laughs> Network was one I, I watched a few for my first time a few years ago uh, in a class I was taking on films about the media. And I remember watching it thinking, I thought this was supposed to be satire. And like it, it right, was yeah. so right on. Yeah. Yeah. I always said that the that the election of Trump was the first time reality got away from that film like that was the first time it felt like oh you didn't see this coming mm-hmm. but you got everything else right and it's still really on point <laughs> i'm not saying it's a film that doesn't have anything to say about right now <laughs> but yeah network is network is brilliant and then idiocracy got the election of a uh big wrestling superstar right so. it's it um I mean, it only could have worked better if the president in the in the in Idiocracy was the star of "Ouch My Balls." That's the <laughs> only way that the film could have been more on point. <laughs> oh, I need to watch that one again. I, I do enjoy that one quite a bit. Um, <laughs> I like all of Mike Judge's movies, actually. I, I I really liked Extract. I think that was the last one he directed. I thought that was a lot of fun. Um, but they always seem to always seem to fall through the cracks and then become these little institutions like idiocracy is, is tossed about by everyone these days. I hear idiocracy all the time. So I'm glad yeah. that movie finally found an audience that is on HBO Max idiocracy. It's what Perry craves. And uh, <laughs> um, I, I've been watching recent. Well, the movie I saw most recently is not notable for what it is, but how I saw it. Uh, so this Saturday evening, my son turned nine years old uh, about a week ago. And my wife and I were trying to figure out what are we going to do to celebrate his ninth birthday? What can we do that's safe? What can we do where maybe we just take a few of his friends with him, like his cousins? So we decided to rent a private theater at our local AMC for him to take a few of his buddies and this past Saturday, we made our first trip back to the movies in a year. And uh, it, it felt good to be back. And uh, they had a nice selection of movies he could choose from. I was really hoping we could go with Raiders of the Lost Ark or Back to the Future. But he's a little too young for that. Um War with Grandpa and Jurassic oh. World were right on the list, and I was terrified <laughs> he was going to pick them. I did not want War with Grandpa to be my return to the movie theaters. Uh, instead, he chose The Karate Kid, which we had actually watched a few weeks ago. Uh, he'd been kind of interested in Cobra Kai, and he's not really of age for that. So I was like, ah, we'll watch Karate Kid. You'll like this. And he loved it, so we got a bunch of friends, went and saw The Karate Kid, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, there was the joy of returning to a movie theater, being able to sit in a room where the lights go off and your attention is just directed on the screen and it smells like popcorn mm-hmm. and it's wonderful. Um, and then just the joy of realizing, oh, Karate Kid is a movie that is a joy to watch with a group of kids. <laughs> uh, and it's, I, I really like Karate Kid. It is 
so much better than I had remembered when I revisited it a few weeks ago. I thought that uh, it is not the best John G. Avildsen sports movie. That is, of course, Rocky V. But Karate Kid uh, really works. I, I still really love uh, Mr. Miyagi and Daniel LaRusso and... I was glad that that was my first trip back to the movies. So have you done any of these private rentals or anything? I have not. It is worth I'm not opposed to it. I just haven't had a reason yet. But I promise as soon as we do, we will talk about it here. It it was fun. It was a little bittersweet, though, because, you know, it was it was exciting to go back to the movies. But it was seven o'clock on a Saturday night. And there were maybe 15 cars in the parking lot. Uh, yeah. One person in line of me at the concession stand. The concession stand was, you know, they handed you everything. They put the pop butter on the popcorn and everything. Um, and then at 930, the movie's out. The lobby is dark and empty. And it, <laughs> it was bittersweet because you're like, oh, I don't I don't know what the future is for this. But uh it felt good to be back, and maybe movies are actually the safest place to be right now because they are totally empty. So I have no clue. <laughs> if your bubble's tight, yes, it's probably pretty safe. Yeah. Uh, do you have any opinions on the Karate Kid? Is that a movie? You were Karate a Kid older plays. Than yeah, it works. It is. It is. It is old fashioned in the best sense of the word. It, and it's not. You know, it. it, it uh, I mean, I. It's, you know, I. I don't know. It's hard. It's weird to talk about how people will react to the Karate Kid having never seen it. You know, it's not Rocky. Mm-mm. It really isn't. It is not the same story. It's yes, there are there are parallels to be sure, but it just works. It's a really tight script written by the guy who went on to write uh, the uh, Taken. Oh, I <laughs> did not same know screenwriter. that. Wow, I did not yes. know that. <laughs> this guy understands structure. <laughs> and i've i i have a uh of of all the 80s boy actors i i have the softest spot for ralph macchio i always thought he was he was certainly head shoulders knees and toes above c thomas howell <laughs> who i could never stand even at that age um <laughs> but uh he, he's he's very good in that and yeah pat Morita, you know got an oscar nomination yeah. And earned it and deserved it. He's very good. The one scene that, you know, that he gets it for, the scene you know he gets it for, mm-hmm. if you've seen the movie, that's, you know, that could have been done really badly. <laughs> and it isn't. It's done really well. Yeah. It, it is It is a shameless injection of backstory and emotion <laughs> that stops the movie cold to do it and it plays it plays beautifully well and i've been watching cobra kai which i don't know if you've seen any of that it's on netflix no so. i have zero interest okay it, it's, it's <laughs> i know you're a fan but i it means literally nothing to me it's very entertaining but it does like it, it has that mentality that you know a lot of kids films have these days where you know, kids films and sports films have to have this where every second there is something exciting or some twist that happens and Karate Kid, it was so refreshing to watch that and realizing, oh, that's not what this is. This is a very patient movie, and it actually, yeah. you know, takes its character seriously. It makes you wait for the karate to happen, and uh, yeah, it was it was very enjoyable to watch. And I, I'm not going to say movies are back because I it might be another six months before I get back in a theater, but uh, <laughs> we'll we'll see. It was it was nice to be back for that one night. So, but we're going to shift attention to three films you can see on a variety of streaming services right now. And we're going to start with Netflix's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. This is based on the play by August Wilson. Uh, I'll read the IMDb synopsis, which is during a recording session, tensions rise between Ma Rainey, her ambitious horn player, and the white management determined to control the uncontrollable Mother of the Blues. This stars Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman. Um, I knew nothing about this movie heading in. Um, Perry, were you familiar with August Wilson's play before this? Uh, I knew of this play. I had never seen it or read it, and I'm familiar with some of August Wilson's work. Uh, so I, yes, I had an idea of what to expect going in. Uh, and I was very, 
very excited to watch Viola Davis do this. <laughs> that was that was the big pull for me. I'm like, I, I I know what this part is, and I want to see this happen. And in in that capacity, I was not disappointed in the slightest. No, she's really great from that first scene on. Um, she yeah. she uh, the, the it's interesting to watch her play this woman who who knows exactly the industry she's in and what people are going to do with her music and wield the power that she knows she does have. Uh, that that was fascinating to watch throughout the movie. I, I really thought she was really good. My uh, my only complaint, and this isn't a complaint because I hate this complaint. I can't believe I'm going to express this first about this. Um, it is, it's it's pretty stage bound. And that's for a reason you want to – I mean this is – so for some backstory production-wise, this is the first of a giant deal that Denzel Washington has to uh, to bring August Wilson's plays to the screen. Mm-hmm. And this was originally set up at HBO. It's moved to Netflix. This is the first one of those. And so you know, he is going to make sure that you hear August Wilson's dialogue, which is beautiful and poetic. Yeah. <laughs> and rhythmic and wonderful but i will admit you spend a long time in one place mm-hmm. <laughs> listening to people talk and it's and i don't have a problem with that i i it's not a complaint for me but i will say especially considering the films we're going to talk about going forward and the next one we're going to talk about and uh figuring out ways to change it up <laughs> to stage things more interestingly visually throughout is a help. I wish there was some more of that here, but that said, I'm not going to complain about, you know, listening to, to dialogue this good. No, I, I had the same note on that. Um, it is a movie that when you watch it for 15 minutes, you realize you, you know, you can tell this was based on a play. It's, and, and it takes place in basically a recording studio and the green room in the basement, the two locations. And they, Occasionally, you know, maybe jump outside to an alley or something. Um, but even the performance styles feel very theatrical to me. Yeah. You know, very, very big. And it's because they have this dialogue to chew into. Um, like you, that didn't bother me. I it, it was very riveting throughout. But it did really feel like, oh, this is something. This is basically what I would see if I went to a theater and saw this on stage. Like, I, I would not see anything that was much different, except I probably wouldn't see Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman in this. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, I would love yeah. that. But uh, no, it, it is a movie that held my attention. The, the, the staginess of it didn't bother me, or stage boundness of it didn't bother me. I, I don't think they open it up as well as they can, but I, I mean, when you have actors tearing into this material... That's, you know, get out of their way if you need to, you know, that that that's fine. Um, And I think it is a movie with a lot on its mind. Like, it's really about the the way black artists were exploited by white artists who, you know, would would set up the recordings and then, you know, do whatever they wanted with the music. And you have this tension between Ma Rainey and Levy, her trumpet player, and... You know, she's she's been around. She knows what's going to happen to her music. She knows the position she's in. She knows where her power is. And she also knows what's going to happen the instant she steps out of that recording session. And then Chadwick Boseman plays Levy. And he is still in that, you know, very vigorous, but maybe kind of naive stage where he, he thinks, you know, he's going to be the one to break through. And he's going to be the one that, you know gets that shot to stardom and you kind of watch what happens and the fallout of that. And the tension between them as they navigate for power is really, really fascinating to watch. I I really enjoyed watching Davis and Bozeman together. And it just watching Bozeman was the thing that stuck with me Um, because he was filming this probably when he was aware of how sick he was and he throws everything into this performance it is a very electric performance yeah i for me, uh, yes it is about all those things and for me the the thing that i find most fascinating about it is this the 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 problem is that both ma rainey and levy need each other mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's 
it's it's it's this sort of they each have what the other needs in order to move forward in the culture <laughs> and in the future of of race relations like they they don't she she does need his understanding of what people want and he's right as as the as the, as the story proves out right to the very end mm-hmm. but he does not as much as he is as much as you realize the character has experienced horrific racism he doesn't understand how systemic it is yeah. he doesn't see that and that's fascinating that august wilson would write these two characters this way and to show that if only you know if only ma were a little less prideful <laughs> and if only if only each of them were a little less prideful they would be much better off mm-hmm. than where than where they are uh, when the story ends and if you don't know the history the real history of ma rainey check check it out he... do, do, do some homework it's worth it it's a, she's a fascinating figure in the history of music these three movies this week were really like it was wonderful to watch them because all three of them were stories i was totally unfamiliar with uh, the people involved in them um like so the, this was one i did not know who ma rainey was or that she was a real person before yeah. i saw this movie and at the end of the movie you get a little glimpse of that and i i was kind of taken aback i'm like oh she was real i i didn't know any of this um. Yeah. I. I mean, what did you think about Bozeman? Because I thought, like, I. I thought that was just a fantastic performance. And I don't know if a lot of it is just power generated too by knowing it's the last time we're going to be seeing him on screen. But he has two monologues in particular that I just they are so powerful to watch. Um, particularly the one where he talks about uh, watching his mother endure really horrible treatment. Yes. Uh, he's, he's very good for me. What I will always remember about Chadwick Boseman is he was great and he didn't need to be talking to be great. He was a wonderful physical presence in all sorts of ways. I mean, if you ask me, you know, when I hear Chadwick Boseman's name, the first thing I think of is the dance he would do just before stealing a base as Jackie Robinson. (laughs) In 46. That's so good. It's it's this wonderful physicality. And he's got it. And that, not that he wasn't great talking to. I'm not saying that he's finished when he opened his mouth. But, I mean, I bought him as James Brown on stage. Because he could do that. <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 I remember him. I, I remember the bearing and the presence in Black Panther more than I remember anything he says. And here it's the same way. It's the way he prowls around that, that yeah. practice room. He's always moving, which is really smart for the character and for the actor. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, 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 like I said, you, this, August Wilson <laughs> was a great playwright. I feel stupid saying that <laughs> obviously. And this is a great play of his. So yes, the words are amazing. And we, I know he's a good enough actor to deliver that, but yeah, what I'll remember is, you know what? Uh, uh, I, I just remember him stalking in that basement, so full of energy that he he can't stop. And then uh, the, 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 this, I, I I really enjoy the uh, the seduction sequence for the same reason. Yeah. When he when he seals his own doom by uh, by hitting on Ma Rainey's girlfriend, it's is uh, that's a great scene. That's yeah. a great scene. Yeah, he's very energetic. Like he he doesn't stop talking in this movie, so he does have plenty of dialogue to chew into. But like you said, he's he's always moving too. Like he doesn't stand mm-hmm. still, and it, it kind of made me nervous. <laughs> like when people move that much, but it, it really just a a solid performance, and it just made me very sad to think that's the last time I'm gonna gonna see him on the screen. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if there's a ton to say about this. This is a movie that I'd really recommend people to see without, you know, kind of having to go over everything that's in it. But uh, yeah, I mean, the director, Gregory Wolf, I or George C. Wolf, I'm sorry. I'm looking at his IMDb. He has not done a lot of movies and he helms this very well. Um, yeah, it's solid. And it's I mean, like you said, Denzel's a producer on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of there were a lot of people overseeing this to make sure it was going to be done right. I, that's, I'm not saying that to diminish what Wolf does here in any way. 
I just saying he's he had a he had a system behind him that wanted to make sure this was getting done right, and there was a reason he was chosen. I'm sure, and and you can see it. It totally works. It's, I mean, it's for I love how for having such little, uh, you know, so few physical spaces to be in. I never question when this is taking place. Mm-hmm. It's a really brilliant job of, of costuming and art direction. <laughs> you know, I know exactly where I am, both time-wise and and uh, and that I am in the city. Uh, it works. Yeah, it's 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 good. It's it's good. Watch it. It's good. Yeah, and, and bring it up, Wolf, <laughs> real quick too. I didn't realize. I, I like I said, I have his bio up. He he's a Broadway director and producer so and he was he was involved with angels in america um so that is a really good fit for bringing this play to the screen um and he, he does does a good job he knows when to get out of the way um now one thing I, I think as we seek into the next movie you had mentioned the stage boundness of this you know was the one thing you noticed i think that's the best way to kind of put it it didn't bother either of us but you know it, it's very easy to notice this was based on a play did you feel that same thing with One Night in Miami? Um, okay, yes, but differently. I mean, this the disadvantage, of course, is, you know, I knew they're based on plays. Mm-hmm. Sure. So you sort of can't help but pay attention to that. But uh, the difference between the two when it comes to that is the style of the, of the writing itself, of the actual dialogue. Ma Rainey, you know, feels like – it feels like – spoken poetry mm-hmm. it is dialogue with a capital d and i don't that's not a knock at all it is what it's supposed to be it is a performative thing and one night in miami does this brilliant thing i suppose we should set it up it takes place the night that Cassius clay wins the heavyweight title from sunny liston uh sam cook malcolm x jim brown and Cassius clay are all in miami that night as they were in reality and the play was a fantastical look at this conversation that could have happened between the four of them that night uh what's what i love about the movie version is that uh and i want to give full credit to kemp powers the writer of both the play and who adapted himself also the writer of pixar's new film soul Mm -hmm. so kemp has had a very good uh end of the year uh kemp powers does this brilliant thing where he uses our collective memories of each of these four fantastic figures and lets that weight just sit there and he doesn't feel the need to explain very much and he uses them as a particular stance of how African-American masculinity can be expressed in the culture at the time and how it could be expressed going forward. And all of that is done by giving these guys incredibly natural dialogue to speak. <laughs> this is not floridly written no. like Ma Rainey is. This feels, uh, this is this is much jokier. Uh, it's much lighter. And not to say that it's light. It's just, it sounds like conversation. It, sound, it does not sound like dialogue with a capital D. And that's really smart is to take away, you know, to not beef these four guys up with the weight of their histories, but to make them just guys. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, but they're there. I know who the four of them are by far at every point, and I don't forget, but he doesn't feel the need to lean into it, which is fantastic. No, he, I was, this is a movie I kind of was hesitant to visit just because there's this tendency when you deal with these iconic figures you get you know two hours of an impression and i didn't want that and i was kind of dreading that um but i think one thing that's really canny and i don't know if it was a choice that was uh in the original play or if uh kent powers wrote that into his screenplay uh is it starts with each of these men on their own you know you see cassius clay winning winning a fight in england and you see you see each of them kind of navigating something and you get to see them and you have you know it's Malcolm X it's Jim Brown but as they get together and they they're in this hotel room and they're these four very high profile people they they balance each other out and it lets them just be the people 
Like their their celebrity yeah. kind of cancels each other out, and you can have them start to be humanized. Like I I remember I went uh. When Malcolm X, when they when they start portraying him, I was a little worried. I'm like, oh, is this just going to be, you know, an impression of Malcolm X? And very slowly, very cannily, um, I think uh, Kingsley Benadire just really he starts letting vulnerability creep in. There's a little uncertainty. He really humanizes him very well, um, particularly in the scenes too where he goes toe to toe with Sam Cooke, who Leslie Odom Jr. is just fantastic in this. Um, and, and I really appreciated that they were able to reach beyond, you know, the icons and the caricatures and have a real discussion using four four icons who come across as as human beings, just regular guys. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So all that. In addition, for for uh, Kingsley Benadire, I mean, I'm not so much worried about a Malcolm X impression as I am about a Denzel Washington sure. impression. Yeah. That's a heavy, heavy long shadow you gotta you gotta work out from under to do this and boy does he it's really impressive because uh you know as great as denzel is in malcolm x and it's the best (laughs) this that i I, it's it's still stunning to me he doesn't have his oscar for that uh you know even if you watch malcolm x now mm, there's still denzel there's a lot of denzel star power there Mm. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you know the fact that uh that kingsley benadire is so less well known allows him to we we sort of let him be malcolm and he does not look like denzel <laughs> and he does not sound like denzel uh it's a really impressive performance on a bunch of levels in addition to being just really he's i mean he's certainly i would argue of the four of them he's doing the heaviest lifting plot wise i mean it's structured where he is the one poking at all of them yeah and uh and the he's the most manipulative and i don't mean that in a bad way i just mean for plot purposes he's the one who wants something from each of them uh boy it's uh if if the if the movie doesn't work it's going to be his fault and it works really really well so i want to give him all the praise in the world for that and, and yes as you're saying leslie odom jr who Man, the first scene that you see him perform, I had to stop and go. Wonder, I wondered if he was doing his own singing, and he is. And I can't even begin to explain to you how much I love Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke's story is one of the most interesting in the history of American music. I uh, the, the best rock bi- uh, music autobiography, not autobiography, music biography I have ever read is "Dream Boogie: The Triumph of Sam Cooke" by Peter Gurlnick. Uh, read it. <laughs> just just find yourself a copy and read it. It's amazing. Uh, and you get to learn some of it in this, but I am uh, I am now dying for someone to to snap up the rights for Dream Boogie and, and then let Leslie Adam Jr. play this character for six or eight hours in something because oh, he is so on. If you know Sam Cook at all, I mean I truly thought I truly needed to look up on the first scene because I was curious if they had some tapes. Because at the front of this, oh, this is some boring movie, music history. So you'll notice at the front of this, there is a credit to Abco Productions, okay, which is the company that was uh, run by Alan Klein. Alan Klein, basically in the I think it's late fifties, maybe early sixties, early sixties, went to like 60, 61, 62, went to Sam Cooke and said, "I'm telling you." the record label that you are signed to is keeping money from you. If you give me permission, I will go in and I will find it and I will make them pay you. And Sam Cooke said, okay. And Klein found, yes, hundreds of thousands, if not a million dollars that, that this, that the label was just keeping from him. And so wow. it set him up independently financially and earned him Sam Cooke's trust for the rest of Sam Cooke's life. Now, <laughs> now, if you've heard the name Alan Klein before, outside of the context of of, of Sam Cooke, it's because he was the dude who uh, some of the Beatles ended up signing on as manager <laughs> when they didn't want to go with Paul's father-in-law at the time. And so he promptly completely ripped off both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. He, <laughs> he, he got them both signed 
and bled them for everything they were worth and completely mishandled everything about them and spent it's got years and years of lawsuits. That whole story is fascinating. It's not the story being told here. I shouldn't have digressed about this. That is not the story in this movie, but it's really fascinating history. I encourage you to go check it out. And if I haven't mentioned it, you should read Dream Boogie by Peter Gurlnick because it's fantastic and will tell you all about this earliest part of Sam Cooke's life. That out of the way... <laughs> Let's talk about how good Eli Gorey is as Cassius Clay. And that's the one where I feel like any actor taking that on would also be in a lot of danger because Cassius Clay had a real, you know, there was a particular way of speaking that could be very easily parody or or fall into self-parody. And he somehow is able to capture kind of that sing-song way of speaking, but he doesn't depend on it. Like, he makes it feel natural. And what he really captures, too, is just how much of a like how young he is at this point. So he is not, you know, he's on the cusp of being Muhammad Ali. And he captures really this vulnerability, this kind of uncertainty with what's the next stage I'm taking? Do I want to do this? Is the right thing? Is this the right thing to do? And all those questions that like just swirl in him. And he captures all of that while still being. Just as, you know, swaggery and in love with himself as you'd expect. It, it's really a strong performance and fun to watch. Yeah. Yes, that's the thing for me is that, and you know, Will Smith was fine. His Ali, I have, I have no real complaints about his Ali other than he's not funny. He's performative. He's, you know, he's funny when he's being funny in front of a crowd. But Ali was funny in life. And you get that here. And that's that it's such it is so joyful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is it, it he is the one who who yeah, who has the biggest real life shadow to to try to figure out how to embody. And he does it oh, there's only a couple times where you hear him hit the accent really hard. <laughs> and and I let it go every time. I let it go both times. I'm like, that's fine. Yeah. You got you, you got to do it. It's, it's it's this is not a problem. You just you just notice it because he wants to get the voice right. Uh, and it is it is great how much you know how how smartly the script plays w- uh, with Ali and James and uh, sorry and uh, Jim Brown, the two biggest athletes in America. Mm-hmm at that point and what the two different approaches they took to their public personas and to their sports, Jim Brown was not flashy. He just did it and was the best and intimidatingly. So (laughs) where clay wouldn't shut up and was, (laughs) was quite purposefully as, as, as has been said in many an Ali biography and is said right here in the play, you know, he learned everything he knew how to do from gorgeous George. He picked it up from wrestling. He knows <laughs> if he talks, people will pay. Uh, and that's, you know, that the two differences between those two characters are fascinating in this context and play so beautifully into, yes, the central sort of collision between Malcolm X and Sam Cooke, where Malcolm knows that Sam is the most talented musician on the planet at that time and wants him to use his power to say something. Yeah. And yeah, the, 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 the constant conversation and back and forth about what is your responsibility? Is it to, you know, is it to be public or is it to change economic lives? And is, is that a false choice? Can you do both? It's just great. And none of it plays out like we're, you know, we're saying it just plays out conversationally. Yeah. It doesn't feel like speeches outside of, yeah, Malcolm's got some big speeches, but we're used to Malcolm X speeching. So mm-hmm. so it doesn't feel out of place. I buy that Malcolm X is maybe like that. Sure. It doesn't feel it does not feel stage bound in the way that Ma Rainey does. Not that it doesn't feel entirely on stage bound, but even then Regina King who directed this beautifully because she's smart enough to to like Ma Rainey but doing it more again has a specific expression of time and place i understand it's 1964 i understand we're in miami (laughs) the decor of that hotel room is fantastic motel room is dead on i know where i am 
and I really appreciated how well she did that and how unobtrusively she does that. She's not showy about making it look like 1964. It just looks like 1964. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she knows exactly what to do with these actors. <laughs> she gets brilliant performances out of all four of them. Yeah, I like this uh, a whole lot. Like, it's, it's one of those, it's one of the few films where I would say, if I know nothing about you, I would recommend this to you. Like, I don't, I, I can't see anyone disliking this. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you have even the slightest interest, yes, watch this. It's, it's very entertaining. It's very entertaining. And, but there are real ideas behind it too. I, I heard someone, I, I heard someone knock it because they, their thing was, well, it's just a bunch of, you know, civics history, one Oh one, you know, civil rights history, entry level, uh, no. very talky. And I'm like, no, this is actually very canny uh, in the way it, these discussions probably were happening just like this. And it is this question of you have this talent, you have this audience, there is this fight going on right now. What is your role to play? And, you know, Malcolm X has his his opinions about what Sam Cooke should be doing. And Sam Cooke is very, you know, sure that what he's doing is the right way to address this. And yet, Neither of them are right. Neither of them are wrong. And it's about that interplay of how they begin to see the other perspective and figure out, you know, what that next step is and what is your responsibility with this talent to your community, especially when you've been afforded a stage that other people aren't going to have. You're you're going to be listened to while other voices are silenced. And those are really I mean, it's very difficult to portray those conversations without feeling talky and kind of condescending or, you know, preachy. And I think by centering it on four very charismatic, larger than life individuals, you have that way in. So it's always a thrill to watch. But they're also friends. So there's also that air that's being let out when they're, you know, playing around or joking around with each other. And yeah, it's always a joy to watch. Um, you mentioned that you had to check it first and see if Leslie Odom Jr. Uh, was the one doing his own singing. I have listened to the Hamilton soundtrack enough where I was like, oh, yeah, no, that that's Leslie Odom Jr. doing his own singing. <laughs> I was so happy because I have been waiting for him to have the same breakout that like Lin-Manuel Miranda has had or David Diggs, who are both extremely talented and have gone on to some really enjoyable things, but he was the one I was waiting for. What's the thing that's going to pop for me after Hamilton for him. (laughs) He is so good. And the way he just nails that final scene on the, uh, the tonight show is so good. That performance. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's, it's a big old movie moment (laughs) and it works really, really well. (laughs) It's, you know, you're, yeah. 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 If you're going to you can't, screw up i mean literally meaning you can't screw up if you screw up you're dead (laughs) (laughs) singing a change gonna come and he's and he he delivers it big time it's it's yeah it's really good i cannot think of anybody else who could have played it yeah that's that's the praise and I, i he's he's absolutely perfect and i do think regina king like you said she's she's really really strong on this first outing um i think she just she has a little bit more of a a, of a knack for when to open it up to like she knows when to just have the four men in that hotel room and let the conversations fly and when it's time to follow them outside to go get a drink or you know follow off on two of them It, it just it opens the movie up a little bit more than um ma rainey's was able to do and i don't think it's one is better than the other Although I did enjoy One Night in Miami probably more. Um, but it, it's just it, – I appreciate that opening it up. Um, well, and even I, – I love that even when she doesn't open up, when even when they're in that room, mm-hmm. it's – the blocking is so smart. Yeah. I mean it is it, – you know, and that's not – again, yes, it's not a comparison to Ma Rainey about directorial talent. It's also a function of the scripts. It's that, you know, we talked about how – in Ma Rainey, you know, Chadwick Boseman's character doesn't stop moving. And that really is the blocking. Mm-hmm. He's constantly moving. He's approaching into people's spaces. That's what all the other guys just stand there for the most part. And, the, you know, the way she 
blocks those four men in that room throughout is so I mean it's so often if you're paying attention that you know Malcolm's alone Malcolm is separated from the other three <laughs> often and during much of it and uh there's that fantastic conversation the sequence about two-thirds of the way through the conversation between him and Jim Brown uh where he's not even really capable of looking at Jim Brown <laughs> during some of it which you and you realize that that's really good. That's you're you're you are getting insight into how hurt Malcolm is in that moment, how much doing what he feels he has to do takes out of him. It's really good. Yeah. It's 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 really it's really good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is good, and it is also on Amazon Prime for you now to watch. I I've recommended it already to several people. It is a entertaining and very thoughtful watch. Um, do you have anything else to say about One Night in Miami or? Nope, that'll do it. I can't wait. Regina King proves that, like the old British directors who came up in like BBC TV in the seventies and eighties and went on to be like some of the best filmmakers of their generation. I'm looking at you, Stephen Frears. Uh, you know, she's she's been she, she's been directing TV for almost a decade at this point, and learned learned well and applied everything she knew here. And it, I'm not saying that this looks like TV. I'm saying she's learned how to use her actors and how to use her mm-hmm. space, a limited space. It's really good. It's, it's, it's a very exciting first film. She's becoming one of those people who, is there anything she can't do that kind of makes yeah. me jealous and uh, angry and happy to watch whatever she does. <laughs> um, Perry, why don't you give the intro to our third movie? Because it was not on my radar till you brought it up. Judas and the Black Messiah, which is actually not only is it on HBO max today, it's in theaters today. You can go see this. This is uh, this is directed by Shaka King, directed and written by Shaka King. It tells the story of Fred Hampton and William O'Neill. Uh, we actually talked about Fred Hampton really briefly last year, Chris. Oh, really? Fred Hampton is a character in The Trial of Chicago 7. That is correct. Yes, <laughs> you are right. <laughs> yes. And uh, uh, this... Uh, this is a historical drama slash psychological drama. Uh, Fred Hampton was the head of the Chicago Black Panther Party in the late 1960s. And uh, Fred Hampton, I'm going to go ahead and spoil this part of it if you don't know. Fred Hampton was killed by police. Uh, it is widely believed that he was set up by by the FBI. The FBI were certainly investigating and that the Chicago police and the FBI worked together to make sure Fred Hampton was killed. And uh, this movie is about the mole who the cops put in to infiltrate the Black Panther Party and report back about everything Fred Hampton was doing. Uh, the two leads here are Daniel Kaluuya, who's, who plays Fred Hampton, and Lakeith Stanfield, who plays William O'Neill. That's right, the two guys from the most memorable scene in Get Out together again. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is and uh, and right there uh, pushing uh, pushing <laughs> Lakeith Stanfield around is Jesse Plemons, who plays the FBI officer who is his contact. And um, I, you know, it's one of those things where I don't want to I don't want to give any more of the history because the less I, I, let's put it this way. I knew the Fred Hampton story pretty well. Uh, this, you know, nothing there surprised me. I did not know the William O'Neill story, and there turns out to be a remarkable amount of weight and power at the end of that film uh, when you see the effect in real life mm-hmm. <laughs> about what uh, that these events took on William O'Neill. It's um, it's it's a hell of a movie. It's it's really good. It is. It has this amazing. Uh, it kind of it reminded me in the best possible ways of like the Irishman and the departed. It's got this great look at what it costs to be a, a rat, mm-hmm. what that does to you. And at the same time, it humanizes a revolutionary and not in a cartoonish way and not in a way where it's like he's one. And then the, you know, where he's, where he's this boisterous rebel and then this quiet dude, it's all there all the time uh, in Daniel Kaluuya, who is superb in this, yeah. <laughs> just outstanding in this. He's 
he's quickly become one of my favorite young actors. I think there's very little he can't do. Uh, you know, after Get Out and Queen and Slim and this, he just, he, he knows how to vary what he is doing from film to film and find a real person <laughs> uh, at the center of whatever he's playing. It's really impressive. I'm kind of just gushing and not making a lot of sense, I fear. Chris, tell me what your response was. I, I Like I said, I did not know this movie was coming. Like, this was not a movie that was on my radar until you brought it up. And then I looked and I saw the trailer and I was like, okay, yeah, I, I could I could watch this and see. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I think, first off, what, what really struck me about this and, and why I think it's an important movie that I would recommend to pretty much anyone right now is I did not know much about the uh, Black Panther Party at all uh, growing uh. up. Um, you know, I, I my wife and I were actually talking about this last night because I was telling her about the movie, and her and I both had the same statement where the the first and probably biggest um, impression we got of the Black Panther Party was Forrest Gump. Like, it, it was not, you know, it's not something that was talked about in the families we grew up in. And if it was, you know, they were portrayed as a terrorist organization. You know what I mean? By In, in the... the uh, churches and stuff we grew up in so to see it portrayed as as an organization that is feeding children and working to make you know lives better that that was that was eye-opening to me that was really fascinating to watch um it, it is interesting because the title obviously has these biblical allusions to it right which is mm -hmm. and um but but knowing you know being someone who grew up in the church too you could see how it was this uh you know, this almost Christ-like approach to racial justice, which is love people, feed people, you know, love your community, feed your community. And I had not heard that side of the Black Panthers. I like that was fascinating to me. And I want to know more about that. There's a documentary about the murder of Fred Hampton on Netflix, apparently, that I'm going to have to be uh, checking out. Um yeah, I, I mean, acting-wise, I, I don't know how you could get two better actors. Three better actors if you include Jesse Plemons, who is one of my favorites. Uh, mm -hmm. Daniel Kaluuya, he has two scenes I keep coming back to in particular. The first is where he's delivering the speech. I believe it's in a church or a city hall um, where it's, you know, he's getting the crowd all riled up. He's, he's talking yeah. to them. And it's powerful and it's magnetic and it's charismatic. And it is exactly the type of scene you would hope to see someone play when they're playing a you know an icon like that a a leader but he also has a very small moment where he's getting out of jail and he learns that he's going to be a father mm -hmm. and he doesn't say a single thing uh aside from maybe one or two words but just the look he gives when he finds it out it sells everything he is feeling in that moment and he can play both that big charismatic moment and that tiny, very human, joyful moment so well. And yeah, he's he's someone I, I've been liking since uh, Get Out as well. Uh, Lakeith Stanfield is always someone I love watching. I was a big fan of Sorry to Bother You. And mm -hmm. what I like about him is his character, Bill O'Neill, is when, you know, in certain circumstances, he's very quiet. And when he is talking a lot, it's very much a performance. You know, it's, it's him, you know, kind of selling himself as the security expert, this this person who's on this, you know, who's someone he's not. But every time you can just glimpse this terror and this desire to survive in his eyes, like he can be placid on the surface, sitting there smoking a cigar or sitting calmly in a car but there is just something terrified behind him where you just feel he's every fiber of him is vibrating under that. And he and is it's so there even in the opening sequence before yeah. that start, before we have a reason to believe that's just how he is. Yeah. He is always fearful. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I was a little, I was a little unsure of when I, when I finished the movie was whether it bothered me that we don't learn much about who Bill O'Neill really was. Like, they don't follow him home much. They don't tell us what his family situation is or anything like that. And and I didn't know at first if that was something that bothered me. But 
he is such he is a character who is really concerned with what is going to happen to him right now. He is a person who wants to survive. And I don't think I I don't think he had he, as he's portrayed he has the self-awareness to be thinking much about the consequences of what he's doing, the cost of what he's doing. And so I think I came down that it didn't bother me because I don't know that he would be able to express those things. He's a character who is trying to survive and doesn't realize what it's going to cost him. It, it never even dawned on me. <laughs> so I was already there. That wasn't even an issue for me. <laughs> Obviously, the movie worked for me. <laughs> it must have worked at exactly that level for me. I'd never, it never even dawned on me that we don't know much about him. I felt like I knew everything I needed to know for the story that they wanted to tell here. So, yeah, that's uh, – I, I agree with you without having the same thought. <laughs> and, and Jesse Plemons, like there is, I, there is something about him – where he can look like the more he looks like just a clean cut good guy, the creepier and more unsettling he gets. That face is so pinched. <laughs> that face is so pinched. It's so bulldogish. It's <laughs> yeah. And I also want to. I would like to uh, a big shout out to Dominic Fishback who plays Deborah, who is who is uh, Fred's mm-hmm. significant other in the movie. Uh, She's really good, and they really smartly use her in the screenplay. She is the one who, uh, she she is the one who recognizes and articulates Fred's, uh, uh, Fred's better angels. Yeah. right at the top, and not in a way that's obnoxious, not in a way that you realize that's what they're sort of setting up, but just in a way that lets you believe how much he would care about this woman mm-hmm. for the rest of the movie. It's really smart and she's very good. Uh, it's, 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 it's a, it is a movie that wrestles with so many of the same issues as one night in Miami. And of the three films we've talked about tonight, you know, it's the one that feels like a film. Yeah. <laughs> it's the one that really feels like a movie. This is not stage bound, even with some sequences like the one in the church that are huge, dialogue set pieces it's uh it never feels it never feels tied down it feels incredibly cinematic uh i i like this film a lot i i really yeah i i like it and it's just one of those ones i've been thinking about it throughout the day um yeah the the only the only sticking point i had for me is the makeup work on martin sheen as jadger hoover (laughs) doesn't quite work for me but J. Edgar Hoover's real look didn't work for me, so maybe that's that's a thing. Um, it, I mean, it, it took me out you, of the movie whenever Martin Sheen showed up. Really? Because I mean, you know, uh, once you've seen DiCaprio's J. Edgar, I think any other J. <laughs> J. Edgar is perfectly acceptable. <laughs> I have not so seen DiCaprio's. Oh, 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 how lucky you are! <laughs> That movie's awful, and oh, the makeup job on DiCaprio and Army Hammer is just atrocious. Oh, but I should oh, also good. I should also specify I'm only thinking of Martin Sheen in the few scenes where he's addressing a crowd because he <laughs> he does have a scene with Jesse Plemons where it is kind of Jesse Plemons' character's chance to grow some sort of moral backbone. And he doesn't do it. And I think I think Martin Sheen is really good in selling the despicableness in that scene. Yeah, well, this is not a knock on Sheen's performance. Yeah, it's the makeup. This is a knock on the makeup. Yeah. Let's be real specific yeah, about Sheen's this. really yes, good. Agreed. Um, agreed. And I do, I, I do think, like you said, it hits a lot of the same thematic points as One Night in Miami, particularly in how, and even back to Ma Rainey's, in how how basically white people use money as a tool to turn the community on itself. Um, there, There is a financial benefit that Bill O'Neill gets from this. Yeah. And, you know, there, there is that question of do, and we see this in our, you know, even in our politics today, it's do I just worry about myself and keeping myself going or do I worry about the community I'm a part of? And that that's one of the big questions in this is, are you willing to, 
you know, are you so in it for your community that you would die for that? Or is it, I just need to get by. And those are really the two tensions you have between Bill O'Neill and Fred Hampton. Yeah, that is, yes. One of the many at the core of it, but yes, <laughs> certainly the, certainly one of the absolute dominant ones. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really liked this. I, I had not expected anything from it. Um, like, like we talked about in a previous episode, there is still that part of me that's getting used to hearing, hey, this is going straight to streaming, which this is theaters and streaming. And, and there, there's still that, that little twitch I get, which is like, oh, then it can't be as good as a real movie, which I don't know why <laughs> I get that, but it's there. And no, this is, this is a movie, if it was in theaters, I'd be telling you to run out and see it. It is in theaters. I'm telling you, use caution if you go out and see it. But it's right there on HBO Max, and you should be watching it on HBO Max. And I think more people are going to see this movie because it's going to be on HBO Max than they may have if it was just uh, just a theatrical release. I mean, it's going to get that promotion that this is out there. This is one of the new releases. See this instead of seeing whatever the Denzel Washington serial killer movie is. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, this is, this is a really, really good movie, and it, it stuck with me. It's yeah, it's it. I've I've yeah, I've been I've I said about a week ago at this point and I've been living in it nonstop. Like it's 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 cast a long shadow over a lot of stuff I saw at the end of the week. I'm like, I'm still thinking about that yeah. movie. I kind of want to go back to that movie. And I will say one last thing about how good it is. It does the thing that I have grown to loathe more than anything else with a movie like this, meaning a movie based on real life. Where you actually, it does the thing where you actually see the, you see real clips of the real people at the mm-hmm. end of the movie. And I will say that it has, it figures out how to do it better than any movie I have ever seen, save maybe Walk Hard, which has the best credit cookie <laughs> ever. But other than that, and that's a different category, this makes that work uh, by, by, by uh, saving something for that moment. That's really strong and really effective in a way that uh, in a way in a way that it's truly, you know, it's disquieting. Yeah, (laughs) it's an excellent, excellent use of that device. And that is such a tired and lazy device that uh, has become something that's automatic for directors. It's not something they do and use because they need to. And here he needs to Mm -hmm. and uses it really effectively. A hundred percent agree. I actually think, okay, I know Ma Rainey's shows Ma Rainey at the end of the movie. Um, Does One Night in Miami, for some reason in my head, it has Malcolm X giving a speech. Am I remembering that correctly? I, the last, I, 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 I have a different memory. I don't want to say what it is. Okay. I could tell you quite specifically what I think the last shot is, but I'm worried it would be a ruinous thing for people listening. I, I'm, and I don't wish to do that. I'm thinking, I know for sure there is, there are words put on the screen. And I think that's what I'm getting kind of confused. But like you said, most movies, when this is done, it's kind of like a little honor the person you were talking about. You know, it, it has, it doesn't really have a thematic necessity it's just there to say hey this was based on a real person there they are this movie yeah. it the that button is there for reason and it lands a punch when it happens yeah um yeah yeah 100% agree um yeah yeah i would recommend all three of these you can stream them right now on uh, ma rainey's is on netflix one night miami is on amazon prime and Judas and the Black Messiah is on HBO Max. Uh, Perry and in theaters. And in theaters, you are right. <laughs> um, I, I, it, what's funny is when I was—I don't know if it's just the year it's been—has been bringing it more to my attention. But when I looked back at the running list I have for my top ten films this year, I, I was amazed how many of them, which right now includes uh, One Night Miami and Judas and the Black Messiah, how many of them are are really strong portraits of the civil rights flight of the of a black experience. Um, I mean, we haven't even, I talked much on this podcast about uh, Steve McQueen made six mo- or five movies about that this year, five or six that were really good. Uh, and then there, we did a whole episode on the five bloods. This was a really strong year for movies about uh, the black experience. Yeah. I think you're seeing the result of get out making a ton of money. <laughs> Well, I, I I think that is one reason, but I think it, like it's something in the air and 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 Black Panther. Yes, yeah, 
don't don't discount either. I, yeah, from a sheer yes, I didn't mean for that to sound you know <laughs> awful. I, I meant just the the you know you follow the money. Yeah. This, if, it, if if this if these three movies taught us anything, follow the money. And when it's shown that films that might otherwise in the past be thought of as oh that's only going to be for black audiences make hundreds of millions of dollars, mm-hmm. guess what? People are going to start making those movies. Thank yeah. goodness. <laughs> we need more stories, not less. Yeah. We need more storytellers, not fewer. And uh, uh yeah, it's this is I uh, yeah, these are uh, these are three these are three good movies. Uh, one of them very good and one of them great. Yep. <laughs> totally agree. It was a pleasure to watch these movies and to talk about them. I totally agree. We have one more episode coming up that that will close off our 2020 catch up. Uh, so we'll have oh, that for you in two weeks. Maybe. Oh, I, there might be more than one. Let's let's get. There's a lot of movies still coming. All right, I'm excited <laughs> to talk about them. Uh, but in the meantime, Perry, where can people find you? You can hear me every Friday on the Lucian Lance Show on WLBY in Ann Arbor. You can find me at Perry Loves Film. You can hear me occasionally at the Cathode Ray Mission podcast. We have a whole episode coming up at the end of the month devoted to freaks and geeks. I'm very excited about that one. And uh, you won't find me in the theater just yet. But, you know, if you, again, smell the battery burning on my remote control as I'm constantly scrolling through all these different services trying to find something to watch, that's probably me you're smelling. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Mere Christianity. You can find my newsletter every week at criticisms.substack.com. And you can listen to my other podcast, Cross Culture Critic, which comes out about once a month. And in the meantime, we'll be back in two weeks.